Father, you know us better than we know ourselves. You know our church. And you know every individual heart and mind and how we have struggled and failed and longed and needed this year, this week, this morning. And in your kind providence, you have this word for us today. For some of us, it may land freshly, acutely, right on to the very things we were longing for and eager for. For others, it may be things we have not even thought about. We pray that your word by your spirit would do its rebuking and correcting and teaching. Train us and equip us in righteousness. We pray that your word would encourage. In all the ways that we as a church are walking faithfully, we pray that this word would encourage endurance and faithfulness. And we love you, Father. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I suppose this sermon has two parts, mainly. One, the opposition the church is facing in this passage. And two, how the church responds. The opposition that the church is facing in this passage. And two, how the church responds. And you won't probably hear me refer to those two points again. But just know that's pretty much the shape of the whole message today. The challenge the church is facing in chapter 12 and how the church responds. Satan wants to destroy the church. He wants to destroy the church. He wants this church to be destroyed. He wants your marriages. He wants your children. He wants your singleness. He wants your jobs destroyed. And this has been Satan's desire since God's people first met him in the garden. Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 8. And look at verses 38 through 44. John chapter 8. As Megan said, if you don't have a Bible this morning and you're here and you need one and would like to have one, please take one of the Bibles under the chairs in front of you. And if you're in those house Bibles, we're on page 894 to look at John 8. In this passage, the religious hypocrites, known as the Pharisees, they wanted Jesus dead. They wanted him dead and they were making plans to kill him and have him killed. Where does such a desire come from? Such violent hatred of such righteousness and holiness like Christ. Why does the darkness hate the light? When people want to kill the people of God, what is the ultimate origin of their desires? Jesus explains this to the Pharisees in John chapter 8, verse 38 through 44. Jesus says, I speak 
of what I have seen with my Father, and you, speaking to the Pharisees, you do what you have heard from your Father. And they answered him, being Jews, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. And they said to him, Still not understanding. We were not born of sexual immorality. In other words, we're true descendants of Abraham in genealogy. And they would go so far as to say, we even have one Father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me. If God were your Father, you would love me, Christ. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but He sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? Is it, not because you, it is not because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. Just went right out and said it. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Notice Jesus gives us a point of systematic theology here. That is to say, he tells us a doctrine about Satan which we should understand in history for all time. Satan is a murderer and a liar. seems fitting to say Satan has not limited his murderous vehemence to the people of God, but Satan actually is more directly opposed to any allegiance to God in the world. Hear it in Jesus' mouth. You want to kill me. No shocker. Your father has been wanting to kill God's people from the beginning. And that's who is your father. Don't miss it. From the beginning, when Satan whispered in the ears of Eve, you will not surely die. He wanted her dead. He was craving and wishing and scheming for her to die in every way. When Satan tempts you to sin and you feel, oh, this is no big deal. This is not so deadly. This is not so poisonous. Know that Satan wants you dead. Just one drink, just one look, just one bite, as Eve said. Satan has been coming after the people of God since the Garden of Eden and will continue to come after the people of God through temptation, through persecution, and seeking the destruction of the church at every single turn until he is cast into the lake of fire in the end. It's in Genesis and it's in Revelation, and it is the invisible backdrop of every page of Scripture in between. Do not think lightly of Satan's active opposition to the people of God. You live in a world where good is opposed and attacked by dark, 
evil, invisible, spiritual powers. That's the world that you live in. You re- I, re- I listen to the news every morning, almost every morning, religiously you could say. And it paints all kinds of pictures about the world and who's in charge and who's running things and who made what policy and who's running and who's campaigning and who raised the most money and, and on and on and on and on. But the Bible says that behind the visible world that we see, there is an invisible world, an invisible war going on between good and evil, between Satan and God and the people of God. What do you think about this? Does it come across to you as corny, cheesy, overly religious to say that something is satanic or demonic in the world? Is it chalked up to spiritual conspiracy theory to consider that satanic powers might be operating behind the hearts of men and women in the world, whether it's in your own home or in the government? Whether Satan loves the schemes of social media or the allure of television That kind of stuff, that's old-timey. That's a fundamental hocus-pocus kind of stuff. Like like back when dancing and playing cards was of the devil, right? The whole story of the gospel of our salvation begins in the garden with mankind opposed to the ancient serpent. Lucifer, the dragon, Satan. In Revelation 20, verse 2, it says he is referred to, the dragon there is referred to as the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. This is a reality not seen by the eyes, but as part of our faith that there is a God and Satan is part of the universal struggle. Have you ever seen Satan? The curse on the serpent in Genesis chapter 3 sets the stage for the struggle in the very beginning. Part of the curse on the serpent who tempted Eve and deceived her and led both her and Adam to sin. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And following the same formula of other curses, this sets up an ongoing struggle that defines the world as we know it today. Structure the relationship between God, between Satan and mankind. Like the ongoing relationship of the curse between the man and the woman. Where man is deceived, now in this new world order, has been deceived into submission to Satan. And that's the backdrop for the story of all salvation. Satan has been after the seed of the woman ever since. We see satanic aims when Pharaoh killed children in Egypt, when Herod the Great killed children in Bethlehem. And now Christ Jesus explains that the Pharisees seeking to kill him are doing exactly what their father has always been doing from the beginning. Murdering. Lying. We see in the book of Revelation the serpent, the dragon, makes war there. Makes war on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Herod killing James and imprisoning Peter, seeming to plan the same fate for him, is right in line with Satan's whole murderous, lying career against the people of God. And it seems almost as if the church is getting their badge of honor as part of the people of God. 
part of their initiation, if you will. They are part of the team now. They are part of God's people in history. They are most certainly God's people because they are being persecuted and murdered and lied to and tempted like all of God's people in all time. The biographer Lindell Roper notes this in his biography about the reformer Martin Luther. One night Martin Luther, Luther received a demonic, troubling vision that woke him up in a sweat and he considered it proof that he was one of the elect. Herod killing James and imprisoning Peter is the same old story that Jesus recognized in John 8. Satan was a murderer from the beginning. As we look through the book of Acts last weeks, and as we do in the coming months, we'll see that the church is facing various challenges from chapter to chapter, from culture to culture. We saw the language barrier back in Acts chapter 2, cultural and ethnic, uh, ethnic divisions in Acts 6, religious, political persecution, Acts 4 to 5. Stephen is killed in Acts 7. Then, by the religious zealots, the Pharisees, there's a philosophical challenge to the gospel at the Areopagus in Acts 18. There are internal disagreements like between Paul and Barnabas. And there's Paul's journey or just the weather itself is an opposition, it seems. In Acts 12, they are facing the challenge of persecution, Peter's imprisonment, and the death of James, one of the sons of thunder, by the hands of Herod, a foreign government. Not only does the church have earthly enemies, but this is representative of the church having devilish, prowling gaze upon her. In the fight between God and Satan, what can the church do? When governments of the world do Satan's bidding, as we see through Scripture, as we see in Revelation, and as we assume is still happening today, what can the church do when the likes of Herod kill and imprison the church. Notice Luke takes special care to state the details of the opposing forces. I'm really going to make a strong effort to minimize my references to the Dallas Cowboys this year. So this is just a general reference to football as the season is upon us. If you watch football at the beginning of the game, you will see as the game is beginning, you'll see a screen pop up and it's got pictures of all of the players. Or they might introduce you to one player at a time. You know, this is Roger Staubach and he's from such and such university and this is Ezekiel Elliott from The Ohio State. And you know, you got all these names and where they're from and you're getting a picture of how big they are. Maybe how fast they are. Maybe what their speed is in the 40-yard dash. And you're getting a sense of this is their team. This is who we're facing today. Luke, gives us a lot of details so we understand exactly what the church is facing in Acts chapter 12. Look at Acts 12 verse 1. It begins, about that time, Herod, a powerful king, the grandson of Herod the Great, 
laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. There's violence. What did he do? Verse 12, he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. I mean, it's just, it's just an, such a passing phrase. James, what, the, the brother of John, just killed with a word, with a snap of his fingers. And when he saw that that pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. How ironic to be celebrating the days of unleavened bread. They were rescued from Egypt and now be put in prison and killed. And when he, verse 4, when he, Herod, had seized him, he put him in prison. Roman prison would have been deep underground probably, filthy, poorly ventilated, enclosed by metal bars in one direction, no windows. Peter was put in prison. He was delivered over to four squads of soldiers to guard him. That's about a hundred people per squad, also referred to as a century. Four hundred soldiers. And we see later in verse 6, now when Herod was about to bring him out that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. So you got the 400 soldiers and you have the two in prison on both sides of him as he's sleeping. And you see there in verse 6 that he was bound with chains and there were sentries before the door guarding the prison. So you've got two inside, two outside the door, and 400 men making sure that this chained up in prison man does not get out. Do you get the picture? So I guess it's over for Peter. I mean, that's it. I mean, Houdini can maybe get out of the chains, but he's got to face guys with swords, trained to kill him. James is dead. Peter's a few hours away from being delivered in the same way. Except remember what Hannah prayed in 1 Samuel 2. As King David was coming onto the scene, remember what she prayed, 1 Samuel 2, 8. God will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. Not by might shall any man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. Remember when Israel marched around Jericho and shouted? No weapons in hand. No might to speak of. Remember when Israel walked across dry ground through the Red Sea? No military, no chariots, no horses, no battle training, no might. Remember when Peter, the same Peter now in prison, remember when Peter cut off the soldier's ear, but Jesus reattached it and told Peter, put your sword back in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Now James is dead. Now Peter is deep in prison, surrounded by layers of guards. What does the church have? We've seen the defense. What does the church have? What's in their lineup? <laughs> what play can we run to oppose that? 
Herod has all the top draft picks from Ohio and Alabama. There's none from UT. Sorry. Over here on the offensive lineup, the church, it's like we're saying, you know, we've got Peter running quarterback. He grew up fishing. He was afraid to admit that he knew Jesus to a little girl once. Now he's in prison. We've got some women on the team. Let's, let's see what play we're going to run this time, Bob. Well, it's not looking good, Jim. What does the church do? What can the church ever do in the light of such opposition? Gather and pray earnestly. Gather and pray earnestly. See, the church is gathered together in prayer. In Acts chapter 12, verse 12, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, his other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. When Peter gets out, he comes to find the church had been praying, but not just praying alone, had been praying together. Gathered together, huddled, you could say, and praying. Is this a small thing to you? To gather and pray. Do you want to get together and pray? I know that you ought to want to get together and pray. And you know, church, that you ought to want to get together to pray. And so one way you might answer that question is, yes, I know that we ought to want to get together to pray. But the question to you is, do you want to get together to pray? Do you want to get together and pray? Do you long to pray to God together with the church? Do you pray in order to fellowship with God and with one another? Luke notes, there were many gathered together praying. Wouldn't you like to see many gathered to prayer? Or are you okay as long as a few others gather to pray? There's a couple of sentences, just two sentences in this chapter that refer to the church praying. So it might seem like it is a small and insignificant footnote in the chapter. But it is a very small couple of sentences which is the very opposition to all of the force opposing the church in Herod. Do you want to get together to pray? Let me just ask you, when it comes to when you assess your local church, is it your angst, your wish, your complaint that the church does not gather to pray earnestly enough? been frustrated and contacted your pastor or gossiped to another member that our church just isn't praying enough. Because you have wished and you've shared your hunger and your craving for prayer. Let me just say, I have grown up in the church. I've served on staff 
of several churches, and I've been here for 12 years, I have heard all kinds of complaints about the church over the decades. All kinds. Oh, this church is too Calvinist. Oh, this church is not Calvinist enough. Oh, this church is too intrusive on my personal life. Oh, no one from this church reaches out to me. Too many musicians. Music's too loud. It's not enough music. It's not fast enough, not upbeat enough, not energetic enough. The church is too diverse to be practical. The church is not diverse enough to be holy. The church is too big. The church is too small. The church focuses too much on doctrine and their statement of faith. The church doesn't focus enough on their doctrine and their statement of faith. And we could go on and on and on and on the things that I and you and we have heard. I could probably count on one hand easily the number of times in my lifetime I have heard members come to our elders or to myself or to the pastors of churches I've been at and said, we want to pray. We want to pray. We would be praying, Pastor. Call us to prayer. This is a sad mark on the Western church, I think, who has so much, such wealth, such comfort, such ease, and so we pray so little. Beware of gross, unchristian, Americanized version of Christianity which has been baptized in consumerism, self-centeredness, and worldly ideologies which suggest the church ought to be more oriented around you and your preferences and your favorites. Repent from that. Here is something that I find proves true over and over. Search your heart and your mind. Prayers tend not to be complainers. Prayers tend not to be complainers. Because what prayer is, is instead of complaining, I'm praying. Instead of gossiping to men, instead of complaining, I'm praying to God. I might even be taking my complaint to God, but I'm going to Him in prayer. Let me ask you a question. What are you doing tonight? Hey, what are you doing tonight? What's on your schedule? You look on your schedule. What is on your schedule for tonight at 5 p.m.? Our church's schedule is tonight at 5 p.m. We are called to gather and pray. Come and pray. Come and pray together. There's no fancy or magic prayer list that we're going to give. There's no magic pill or prayer that we have that you can't do at home you can do on your own but we're going to be doing it together what are you going to be doing at 5 o'clock let me encourage you if you need to repent of neglecting prayer repent of the gathering to pray when we get together we ought to pray and we ought to gather to pray When we get together, we ought to pray. And we ought to gather in order to pray. 
We do this regularly on Sunday mornings. You've seen in our service this morning, we take time in prayer to confess sin. We pray for the church under our pastoral prayer. I just encourage you to learn to pray here. Some of our elders have prayed different ways over the years, and I might pray different ways from week to week myself. But learn to pray here. Learn to pray in confessing your sin. Learn to pray in trusting the gospel. Learn to pray scripture back to God in regards to the whole church, as you see in our pastoral prayer. Confess, remember the gospel, thank God for the gospel, and bring all of your needs to the, to the Lord in prayer. Mentioning to Him, talking to Him, asking Him for help in those things, crying out to Him. Come back on Sunday evening for prayer. We come and we focus on prayer Sunday evening. We do some teaching, we do some instruction, we, we guide our prayer with Scripture, and we spend time in prayer. When you go to your life group's church, make sure that you're spending time to pray. If you're not in a life group, this would be a reason to join a life group. To have a group of people that you are gathering with to pray. We're not just there to study the Bible. We're not just there to talk about how our weeks went. We're there to pray. This is why life groups are so important. It's not just another Bible study. It's not a you know, Taco Tuesday night together. It's for praying together. And it's not just for praying through your list together. You know, Bob's foot's hurt. Well, let's pray for Bob's foot. You know, you know Jenny's uh, cat escaped yesterday. Well, let's, let's pray. Those things are good. Make your list. But what if in your next life group you took prayer requests from one another but then you just spent time intentionally praying the scripture back to God? And in meditation, and you dwelled on God, bringing your request to Him, your praise to Him, and your confession to Him together. I'm just going through the list. Pray when you're together one-on-one. Maybe you need help praying. I'll just tell you right now, it's much easier for me to pray when we get together and pray with anyone than it is to pray alone. Get together with someone if you need help, just getting started in prayer. Get together with someone one-on-one and say, let's meet together every Tuesday morning at 7 o'clock. Let's read the scripture and let's pray. Let's talk. I want to hear how you're doing. I want to hear how things are going. I want to be praying for you in particular, but I just want to make sure that we're praying together. We're praying together. This prayer, this, this prayer that is not just built on list is how we turn what we sang this morning into prayer. My My God, my joy, my delight, I love praying. I want to pray. I like talking to God. The gospel makes me love God. The forgiveness of my sins through Christ makes me appreciative and thankful to talk to God. It makes me trust Him. Let me just encourage you to do this if you've never done this. This week, plan an hour to do nothing but pray. You've never done this, or maybe it's been a while. Just one hour this week. If you need to make a plan with your spouse, you need to make a plan with your family, you need to make a lunch hour or something that you, you, you don't eat for lunch and you pray instead, plan an hour, start the timer and say, I'm turning my phone off. I'm getting away, I'm getting in the closet, I'm just going to pray for an hour. Would you do that this week? Would you just make that a plan this week? I, I've never done that. My prayer life is wanting. I'm going to pray. I'm going to find an hour to just pray for an hour this week. Maybe I'll read a scripture for a few minutes first, but then I'm going to pray for an hour. I'm just going to keep asking and talking and praising and confessing for an hour. Pray in the hallway when you meet one another. Pray when you go to get coffee. Pray in the grocery aisle. Pray over the phone together. Pray together. What are the odds that if someone dropped into your life like someone dropped into the church's life this evening, they would find us praying together. 
with one or a few or many. This is the church's response to Herod. They were praying earnestly. That's our play. That, that's our go-to. That's the, that's the option for us. To submit ourselves to the Lord and pray. And to do so together and do so earnestly. Verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was being made to God by the church. Every word of Scripture is inspired. It is no accident. It is not a passing word that Luke made sure to mention. They were earnestly praying together. Luke was led to help us understand what it, was, what it would take to pray. It would take earnestness. What did it take for them to pray? It took earnestness to be praying at this hour about these things with Herod breathing down their necks. Oh, you might say, I cannot pray because I am weak, I am tired, and I am unmotivated. I do not have the strength to pray for long or at all. Well, that is the point of praying earnestly. That's why it's called earnest prayer. The word earnest is not used anywhere else in the book of Acts, but it is used in the Gospel of Luke about Jesus. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before Jesus would die on the cross, he was in the garden praying with the disciples. And do you remember what happened? They all fell asleep. All the disciples were too tired to pray. So what did Jesus do? Jesus, being in agony, He prayed more earnestly. He was in agony, so He prayed more earnestly. And His sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. Jesus taught that earnest prayer is the kind of prayer we pray when we are tired. Get that. It's not that we are tired so we don't pray. It is that we are tired so the kind of prayer we need is earnest prayer. Being weak in the flesh and tired in the spirit is not a time not to pray. It's a time when we have to be most careful to pray earnestly. To come back on Sunday night when we're tired and it's a 10-15 minute drive and I took a nap and I'm groggy and there's golf on. That's my temptation. Golf. You probably don't watch golf. Perhaps lately you've been affected by the heat like I have. I mean, it's hot outside. You know what? It just makes me not want to do anything. Can I get an amen? I mean, goodness gracious. I don't want to get up. The temperature is going to change from the bed to the living room. And then I know as soon as I go outside, I'm just going to collapse. I'm just going to just like take my third shower. You know, just sweat everywhere. How many things like this in our lives exhaust us, tire us, wear us down, make us not want to pray? Therefore, effort is needed. Therefore, struggle is needed. Therefore, wrestling is needed. Therefore, you mow the yard even though it's hot. Therefore, you work out even though it's hot. Therefore, you get out and you walk 10 feet to your car even though it's hot so you can go to work. You struggle. You put some sweat into your prayer like someone who's gone to the gym doing one more rep, one more lap, one more exercise. Let me just ask you, have you ever had the conviction or the attitude or the angst that you just need to pray one more minute for Millwood Baptist Church? One more rep for the kingdom. One more prayer for His name before I go. One more prayer for those members. One more prayer for my temptation. One more prayer for the brothers and sisters to persevere in all of their persecution and all of their trials and all of their temptations. There's 400 guards, two guards at the door, two guards beside him, Peter's bound in chains, and there was the church gathered earnestly praying. 
Does this mean Peter's always going to get out of prison? No, just ask James. And what's the tradition about Peter's death? Did he always got out of prison? No, eventually he would be crucified like Jesus, only upside down, as the tradition says. That's not what this passage is about. This passage is not about praying. You're always going to get what you want. Pray, you're always going to be saved from every pain. But that Satan cannot stop the earnestly praying church from multiplying. Let's see, that's the note at the end of chapter 12. It wasn't about Peter. The conclusion wasn't about James. It was about the church multiplying. So the church multiplying. Herod kills James. God kills Herod. Middle. Church earnestly praying. And see this through all the Psalms. David was known as a mighty warrior. Cut off the head of Goliath. He defeated thousands in battle. But what did David say in his Psalms? What was his trust? Psalm 144, verse 1 and 2. Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. He is my steadfast love. He is my fortress, my stronghold, my deliverer, my shield. And in He is in whom I take refuge, who subdues peoples under me. David was not victorious because he did the Spartan workout five days a week. Because he ate six eggs every day, had protein shakes, and was trained by... No, he, not by might shall a man prevail. David trusted God. And likewise, now the church is following in the example of found simply, earnestly praying. Such a small, puny thing to which the Lord adds all of his strength and might. And this culminates in the death of Herod, the grandson of Herod the Great, who killed all the babies in Bethlehem. James kills Herod. Herod is killed by God in the middle of the church praying earnestly and the church multiplies. The earnestly praying church is unstoppable. Acts 12.23 says, Immediately an angel of the Lord struck Herod down because he did not give the glory to God. He was eaten by worms, breathed his last. Perhaps here's a clue into what we ought to pray every single day. Every prayer has this at its root, or it is not in the vein of God's purposes and plans. God, this is our prayer. Your glory. It's not fancy. It's not a long list. It's the way you pray about all the things. You want to pray for Leanne. You want to pray for our deacons. You want to pray for Brian. You want to pray for Cal. Pray for God's glory. Pray for God's glory. Isn't this how Jesus taught us to pray? The very first thing. Father, hallowed be your name. We don't have to get fancy. We don't have to have, say, long prayers about details in everyone's life, although this is important to pray for things specifically. We need earnest prayer. Earnest prayer may be weak and clumsy prayer. Maybe you say, I'm not good at praying. Neither were they. Earnest prayer is not professional prayer. It's just earnest. Laborers in the field who do not have educations from Yale but nonetheless work hard to till the ground. See, they prayed for Peter, but they don't even seem to have the faith or expectation that Peter might be released. This is funny. Peter shows up, released from prison miraculously, and they don't even let him in. Servant girl says, there's Peter, and they say, oh, you're crazy, you've lost your mind. As Kevin DeYoung mentioned in this passage, how frustrating the angel can get Peter out of prison, but can't get him into the prayer meeting. They think the servant girl's crazy, misunderstood, Let's laugh at the crazy girl. She thinks she hears Peter. Peter had to keep knocking, it says. Peter kept knocking. Just imagine Peter. Keep. Seriously, guys. I'm just going to keep knocking. 
Either they were not specifically praying for Peter to be released, or they had such little faith they were not expecting Peter to be released. Doesn't that make you want to pray? Doesn't that encourage you? They just want to stop what you're doing and go spend time with God in prayer. Even the clumsiest, weakest, misguided, but earnest prayers for God's glory are heard and welcomed in the throne of God. Not that we are helpless to find words in prayer or subjects to pray about. Just get your member booklet. If you're a member of our church, get your member booklet. Get your, your member directory. There's a prayer guide in there. Pray for members one by one. It has a prayer guide in it. Think about our church. Think about the finances in our church. Think about marriage in our church. Miscarriages in our church. Job loss in our church. Evangelism. Pastors. Deacons. Teachers. The unsaved children of members of our church. Guests. We have much to pray for. It's just simple to understand and we don't need it. We don't just need more lists as so much as we need earnestness to be the nature of our prayer about everything. Notice the hour I was with Christ. Peter sleeps in the night while the church is earnestly praying on his behalf. Get to earnest prayer. Get to earnest prayer. Prayer has been tried by many but continued by few because it requires so often earnestness. I think so often we are surprised by the earnestness part of prayer. Someone told us it was supposed to be easy, supposed to be natural, supposed to be second nature for us Christians. And so the first yawn that we give in prayer, we think, well, prayer's broken or unbroken, or maybe this is just how long it's supposed to last. Maybe it's not for me. Satan cannot stop earnestly praying churches. Some might die, some might be imprisoned or pay other costs. But the word will continue to multiply. Pray like Satan wants you dead. Pray like that. Pray like Satan is prowling around like a lion, as Peter says later in his letter. And you pray like he's got his eyes on your kids. And you circle around and you pray. Satan is scheming. And he's a deceiving liar, a murderer, a prowling lion, a cunning serpent, a dragon who dresses himself to look like light. What do we do? Pray. We don't even know all of his playbook. I mean, you read screw tape letters and you begin to see there's ways in which Satan may be doing things we can't even see or imagine he would try to do. What can we do? Pray. Earnestly pray. If Herod has joined the work of his father, the devil, let us join the work of our father in prayer. Let us join the ranks of Elijah and Moses, Daniel, David, and Hannah, even Christ himself, and earnestly pray. Don't you know that Christ died that we might pray? In our sins, we are kept out of the garden, out of the temple, out of the presence of God. But by the blood of Jesus Christ, we can now come back into fellowship with God. We can have our confidence to enter the temple. In a way, then, not praying, it's almost like being given a billion-dollar lottery ticket and just never Cashing it in. You got it right here. And you just, you got something else to do today? You got something on your schedule? You don't, you don't have time to take that ticket to the table and tell them, I got the numbers. Christ has gone into the presence of God for us, shed his blood and forgiven our sin. So instead of remaining out of the garden, out of the temple and out of God's presence, we can come to him in prayer and in fellowship. He, the living curtain, is how we draw near to God with confidence. Don't you remember where our prayers go? 
when we pray. Revelation 5 sees into the throne room of God in heaven. There are four creatures, 24 elders, all holding golden bowls. And what is in each of those bowls, those temple artifacts of worship at the throne room of God? Revelation 5 says, And when he had taken the scroll, that's Christ, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Don't you know where your prayers go? They are not lost in your room. They are not blocked by the ceiling. Those who are in Christ, our prayers go to the throne of God and they are worshipped to Him, which He loves and receives as an aroma, a fragrance, a sacrifice. And don't you remember, this is how we fight, church. This is how we fight. Gathering in earnest prayer. Paul taught the church this way in Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Skipping to verse 12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly places. This is not about Herod. It's not about Herod. It's not about the president. It's not about the Cold War. This is not about someone's economic policy. It is all about our great enemy. That's our enemy. The cosmic powers over this present darkness. Spiritual forces of evil in the invisible places. Therefore, Paul says, you church, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. That's what the church is doing in Acts 12. And having done all to stand firm. Skip to verse 18. Praying at all times in the Spirit. With all prayer and supplication. To this end, keep alert with all perseverance Pray earnestly, making supplication for all the saints. Paul says also for me that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. And watch Paul, just like Peter, what is he doing? Let's pray for which I am ambassador in chains. What am I encouraging you to do, church, while I'm here in chains? Pray that I may declare the gospel boldly as I ought to speak. Let us, church, gather and pray earnestly. When we gather here on Sunday mornings, one of the ways you can tell that you are growing spiritually is instead of wondering how long this pastoral prayer is going to last, instead of wondering how this buffer between songs is going to last, recognizing we're here to pray, we're here to do, and instead become to think, that's the prayer today, that was it? Oh, that we might pray more, more earnestly and together. Let's pray. For your word, thank you for the hope that is in it. Thank you for the reminder that is in it, the conviction, the encouragement, everything that you know we need day by day.
We pray, Father, that we might not only repent in word only, and thought only, nod and agree, but that we might walk in your word. And we might see what the church has done here, see how we oppose spiritual forces of evil and darkness with a gathered earnest prayer. Help us pray all the time. In every conversation we are in, and we're on the phone, we're in life group this week, and that one hour that we might take just to pray, help us just be praying. And by prayer, give you glory, depend on you, have our own joy increase. We love you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.